All right, Alexander, let's uh, let's talk about uh, Biden's speech yesterday, talking to the American people from the Oval Office. What are your thoughts about it? Uh, I thought it was pretty, pretty scary, scary, alarming statement from Biden. And my overall takeaway was uh, uh, war on two fronts, war with with uh, with Ukraine or escalation, let's just say escalation. Uh, in the Ukraine conflict and escalation in the war in uh, in Israel, I think that was the the key takeaway. Uh, linking um, Hamas to Putin, I thought that was that was pretty scary uh, stuff coming from Biden and a lie, and uh, saying that uh, Putin and Hamas cannot win. That was interesting, and then saying that it's all about U.S.'s national interests and and national security. That's why uh, the American people have to continue to fund. Not only uh, Israel, but they have to continue to fund Ukraine. What, what were your thoughts on, on this statement, the speech from the Oval Office? Well, in a words, in a few words, firstly, I thought it was a very bad speech. I mean, just just as a piece of rhetoric, I thought it was I thought it failed in almost every respect. I mean, it didn't explain anything. It was just basically a set of cliches. I thought what he was talking about in terms of the conflict in the Middle East, it, it came across to me as box ticking. But of course, put that aside, put aside the inadequacies of Biden's rhetoric. I thought it was a disastrous speech. I thought it was a disastrous speech coming after a disastrous trip to the Middle East. Now, I don't entirely understand what exactly it was that Biden was trying to do when he went to the Middle East. But bear in mind, he was going to go first to Israel and then he was going to go to Jordan and there he was going to meet with King Abdullah of Jordan and President al-Sisi of Egypt and President Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. And all three of these people eventually refused to meet with him and they cancelled the summit. And the reason they did that, quite obviously, is because they saw the fact that Biden was coming to the Middle East without any kind of constructive ideas, without any kind of plan about how to take the thing forward. He says lots of things about you know, not wanting to escalate the war, about uh, the Israelis not make, making the same kind of mistakes that the United States in the, did in the past. Well, actually, he doesn't say that himself. We hear that his officials are telling us that that's what he told the Israelis. I mean, that's I mean, already an important difference. But anyway, we, we hear all of this. But the overall impression, the overriding impression that Arab leaders, Middle East leaders, will have, will have taken away from it is that he came along and gave the Israelis, in effect, pretty much a, back, a blank check. Do whatever you want in Gaza. You have the absolute unconditional support of the United States. And we have the U.S. in sending large numbers of aircraft and ships and aircraft carriers and all those sort of things to the Middle East. And then he comes back to Washington and he gives this speech. And to me, it became absolutely clear that he's not really interested in the Middle East. He's not engaged in it. If you actually go to his speech and listen carefully to what he said and listen, watch him as he said it. When he talks about the Middle East, when he talks about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, he's just box-ticking. He says, you know, we, Hamas, it's appalling. What they did was appalling. 
He then says, well, we need to find a peace solution, um, things that he said in the past, but he says it without any sort of conviction. And then he swerves to the subject that really interests him, the one that he really cares about, which is not about this crisis in the Middle East, this entirely deteriorating and incredibly dangerous situation in the Middle East. He goes back to Ukraine and he starts talking about Putin again. And he makes absolutely false analogies, as you absolutely rightly say, conflating Putin with Hamas. I mean, he admits that there are differences, but you can see that ultimately his real focus always in the end is on Putin. He has this obsessive animus towards and he talks about Ukraine and he talks about um, the conflict with Russia and about the importance of not losing against the Russians, even at the time we know the Middle East is on fire. I thought it was completely bizarre. And then he talks about the fact that he's going to put forward this enormous aid package to Congress. And we now know the details of the aid package. And in fact, it's $14 billion for Israel, but it's $60 billion for Ukraine. Note, very similar to the amount that Lindsey Graham was talking about just a few days ago. You remember when Lindsey Graham was saying 60 to $70 billion. Clearly, there'd been a lot, of, a lot going on between the Lindsey Graham faction of the Republican Party and the White House, and this is what he was working to. So, unsurprisingly... Middle East leaders, MBS, um, King Abdullah, President al-Sisi, all of them, they're now concluding that Biden isn't really interested in their region. He isn't really concerned about what's going on in their region. They don't like him. They don't trust him. The Israelis, by the way, don't like him or trust him either. But there we go. Nobody, everybody in the region understands that this president is unengaged and fundamentally uninterested in what is going on there. That his focus continues to be fixed on Ukraine. And the result is that the region is now sliding ever further towards war. And we already see the signs. We see attacks on American troops in Syria, uh, threats against American bases in Iraq. We've had this very, very uh, alarming incident in which the Houthis launched missiles. And we're told that they were not launched at this American warship, but were launched presumably towards Israel. So that already tells us that the situation is um, spiraling out of control. And of course, Biden is telling everybody, was telling everybody that American troops are not going to become involved in the fighting. And of course, already they have been because the American destroyer that was there shot these missiles down, which is in effect the United States taking action in the middle of this conflict. It is now shooting down the missiles launched by one party against another. So I thought it was a calamitous speech coming after a calamitous uh, trip. And the latest word is that Biden again tried to speak to President Mahmoud Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. And Abbas is now yet another leader who refuses to speak to him. I mean, can you imagine a situation at any time in the past when people were not accepting calls from the President of the United States. But that is where we are now. What a train wreck this has uh, 
turning into. Uh, what do you think about his statement saying that uh, Ukraine is a smart investment? Once again, these are the neocons uh, whispering to Biden. I wouldn't even say whispering. They're they're controlling the strings of of Biden, and, and they're basically just feeding Biden the lines. Sixty billion for Ukraine, and it's a smart investment. This is his pitch to the American people for more escalation, not only in Israel, because he doesn't, he doesn't care about mediation or ceasefire. So you're going to escalate in Israel, but it's his pitch to the American people. We need to escalate in Ukraine because it's a smart investment. It's, 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 it's a great deal for us. This has been, this is the, the neocon narrative, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, 3% of our military budget to destroy 50% of the Russian military. That's the pitch. Yes, I know. Again, it, it it reduces everything to some kind of, you know, commercial level, you know, that we're do- this is a smart investment for us. And, you know, we're fighting the Russians in Ukraine through the Ukrainians proxy war against the Russians in Ukraine somehow prevents American soldiers from fighting the Russians in Europe, which is a crazy idea. In fact, as everybody knows, everybody who isn't a neocon or isn't inclined to you know, accept the sort of narratives that the neocons are spinning, this conflict is actually increasing the danger of a conflict between the Russians and the Americans. Just to give one simple example here, um, the American carrier groups, which are now deploying to the Middle East, everybody's wondering what their purpose is. The Russians are clearly concerned that one of the purposes of those carrier groups might be to launch strikes against Syria. And potentially that could affect the presence the, the Russian troops in Syria. So what does what do the Russians do? Well, Putin has told us they're going to they're going to deploy MiG thirty one jets over the Black Sea, equipped with Kinjal missiles. These are hypersonic missiles over the Black Sea, and uh, Putin says, you know, I'm saying this not as a threat, but as a warning that the, the Eastern Mediterranean, where these carriers are going to be located, is within range of these missiles, which are going to be in the Black Sea. So what he's basically doing, what Putin is doing, is he's warning the United States, look, if you attack our people in Syria, we have the capability to respond. And, you know, we might even do that. Now, that's the reality. That is the situation. A, a, a JFK would be talking, sending messages to the Kremlin now, saying, you know, this isn't anything to do with you. We, are, we have no intention of attacking your people in Syria. There would be hotlines, you know, burning. There would be, uh, you know, uh, other channels being used. There would be... M- you know, the Russian ambassador in Washington would be spoken to. There would be every conceivable attempt to try to bring this whole situation in the Middle East between the United States and Russia, between everything else, under control. This president is just escalating everywhere. He's just provided uh, these attack missiles to Ukraine. He's done this in a bizarre hole-in-the-corner way. He didn't announce it in advance. He didn't say anybody that he was going to do it. He gave everybody the impression that perhaps at one point he was giving everybody the impression that he wouldn't do it. And then suddenly they appear 
Why? What was the point of doing it in that way? It's actually even more provocative, and it is a deception, not just on the Russians, but on the American people as well, because they're being led to think that these missiles are not going to Ukraine, and of course they are. So why does he do it in this way? I just do not understand. But the overall effect is catastrophic, and as I said, far from this being a smart investment, which is, as you correctly say, what the neocons are telling us, it is creating an extremely dangerous situation indeed. No, he's, but Biden is, is moving America towards a two-front war and a three-front war. Yeah. Because in the yeah. aid package is money for Taiwan as well. So how many wars um, absolutely. do you want to push America yeah. towards uh, uh, President Joe Biden? Three wars, really? Russia, the entire Middle East, the entire uh, Arab world. Really? That's going to be your war, Biden? And... And he doesn't let go of Taiwan and China. He continues no. to escalate uh, there as well. And and I got very nervous when um, when he created this link between um, Putin. He doesn't say Russia, Putin and Hamas, which which I think is a complete lie because if there's any link to Hamas and uh, and, and foreign powers, well, you, you can create all kinds of links uh, to the collective West. And to forces that were actually trying to overthrow um, Assad and Syria during the the regime change operation, because Hamas was was operating against uh, Assad and Syria, and we all know who was sponsoring the moderate rebels and groups like this, which were which were uh, being supported by Hamas to overthrow Assad. So I mean, it's a complete lie, a complete fiction yeah. that Biden is trying to spin. And he's trying to sell the American people that Putin is somehow Putin and Hamas are somehow one in the same thing, and we can't uh, we can't let them let let them win. This is uh, Biden's taking taking the U.S. to to all out war with all of uh, with with all the world. It seems, and, and no one yeah. wants to no one wants to deal with Biden anymore. No one wants to see him. No one wants to talk no. to him. No. Biden is the most dangerous person at this moment on this planet. I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. I mean, you know, uh, uh, it was Garland Nixon, I think it was, who said months ago that this is an incredibly dangerous administration. And we can now see it. As I said, it, you're absolutely correct. I mean, his ability to conduct negotiations with world leaders, key world leaders, has effectively collapsed. He can't talk to the Russians. He can't talk to the Iranians, obviously. He's ruled himself out from doing that. But he can't talk to former friends. He didn't go to Saudi Arabia. He didn't meet MBS. President al-Sisi, ally of the United States, he doesn't want to speak to Biden. President Abbas doesn't want to speak to Biden. King, jo King Abdullah of Jordan, he doesn't want to speak to Biden. Xi Jinping doesn't want to speak to Biden. He stayed away from a summit meeting in Delhi because he didn't want to speak to, to Biden. So, as you absolutely rightly say, he's um, advancing taking the United States into conflicts on all possible fronts. What is it I always say? These people have no reverse gear. Well, there you are. You see it now in action. He's completely controlled by the neocons. And, uh, and I also think that, that, that there's a lot of, uh, of campaign election politics in all of this as well. I, I really believe that on the one hand, the Biden administration is absolutely controlled by 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 the Newland Kagan uh, faction, 
And on the other hand, you have the Sullivan uh, faction, which which has taken the line where it's, you know, where we're getting pummeled in the polls. Things are not going well. So the only possible thing that we could do at this moment in time is is chaos. Conflict, chaos, keep the American people uh, occupied with what's happening in Ukraine or Israel or next Taiwan. And maybe there won't be any focus on on the the catastrophic uh, administration that is that is the Biden White House. Uh, you know they 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 want to keep they want to keep this election year up until November two thousand twenty four uh, focused on all of these uh, these wars and these escalations. And they're probably thinking that that's going to be the way for us to. To, to, to drag this guy over the, the finish line in November 2024. And if and if it collapses, Alexander, if, if if something collapses in Ukraine or the Middle East, they can blame Biden as well and they could move in the replacement if something happens yeah. between between now and and then, between the, today and uh, November 2024. Well, well, you're absolutely right. And I would add, by the way, that that's something perhaps he doesn't understand because now he's got... A, a crisis in Ukraine, which is um, you know, the the America the, the U.S. I mean, he, when we talk about a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia in Ukraine, it's important to stress there's a proxy war not between Russia and the U.S. It's a proxy war between Russia and the Biden administration. But that's what what he's maneuvered the U.S. into. He's doing. He's now got another big crisis in the Middle East. Now, I think that perhaps the he himself might just find some way of massaging, you know, they could lean on the media, they could do all kinds of things. If there was a military debacle next year in Ukraine, which is looking increasingly likely, by the way, then they could find some way to argue through that, blame the Republicans or something of that kind. You know, the Republicans in Congress, they didn't provide enough funding or something like or don't even talk about it. But with the Middle East, it's different. I mean, the Middle East, people in the United States care about the Middle East. I mean, uh, uh, and I, I think... If something goes badly wrong in the Middle East, Biden himself will not survive it. I mean, it's you're absolutely right. If that if it all ends badly, which, by the way, it will one way or the other, it will. He will not come through if that bad thing happens before the 2024 election. So he he may not understand that himself, but that is absolutely clear to me now. Um, where we go in the Middle East, I mean, I, we'll just have to wait and see uh, what exactly the plan is. But I don't get any sense at all that this is an administration that is seriously looking to calm the situation or to de-escalate. There's no sign of that at all that I can see. And I suspect we will have some kind of major military operation in Gaza over the next few days. And the Middle East is going to get even more hot and there's lots of American soldiers in all sorts of stray places across the Middle East, and they're very, very exposed. And I don't even want to try and think about what might happen to them. No, I mean you're you're, you're saying you're saying it's a, f- a false flag. It's very possible yeah. at this moment in time because you have all of these U.S. ships in the Mediterranean exposed. You have all of these U.S. bases all around the Middle East, Iraq. Syria, which they occupy illegally, exposed. 
you already have strikes towards these these bases. Yeah. It's not going to take much for some sort of uh, of strike or some sort of false flag to occur, and and then you're going to have the Biden White House with the neocons in the back talking about uh, the U.S. Uh, getting involved in in, yes. in whatever yes. the the strike or the false flag is, and and I also believe that that they're thinking of Iran, but they're also thinking of Syria because the neocons have never forgiven Russia, Iran, and Assad for uh, for Syria because they, they wanted to destroy Syria. They wanted to take Syria. Putin spoiled it, and the neocons have never forgotten. And so for the neocons, this is like – this is a dream come true. They have another shot at Syria. They have a shot at Iran, and they can have conflict with Russia. For them, this is, this is as good as it gets, and they have uh, – a demented and a lost Biden in the White House who they control fully from from top to yes. bottom. Well, I agree with all of that. And I, I, I think, as I said, uh, already you see the Russians taking taking steps to safeguard their position. And we now have MiG-31s with um, Kinjal missiles patrolling the Black Sea, um, capable of striking at American warships, which is a, 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 an unbelievably dangerous situation. And But I think you're absolutely correct because that's, that's the direction which we're now hurtling towards, and there doesn't seem to be any real um, break. Well, they don't. Uh, they don't. Not not only do they not have a reverse gear, well, they don't have a break either. <laughs> and uh, you know, now the Russians are also hinting that they might start sending more advanced weapons to Iran. There's been pointedly reminding everybody that the Security Council resolution that placed restrictions on Iran's missile program has now expired and has not been renewed. So that leaves open the way for more cooperation between Russia and Iran, if it comes to that. So it's an unbelievably dangerous situation, and we're sleepwalking into it. Now, there's a rumour circulating that there are some people in the State Department who are becoming increasingly alarmed and that there's some attempts to um, put a letter together um, criticising the policies that the administration is following. And there was a very interesting article, which I've discussed extensively on my channel, in the Financial Times, from over a dozen diplomats serving diplomats, these are not ex-diplomats, from G7 countries who are also very, very worried about what the administration is doing. So there is some criticism within the US government, but I don't get the sense that it's sufficiently organized or sufficiently strong to make a difference. All right, so talk about uh, the one the one bit of hope that we do have, at least with the escalation of the Middle East, which is the uh, the BRICS, the BRICS nations, um, the U, the the Russian um, delegation. They put forward um, a document to the UN Security Council for ceasefire and for mediation, and now you have Brazil, which uh, put forward uh, a resolution for mediation and the ceasefire. Of course, those resolutions were rejected. But you can definitely see that BRICS, they're coordinating. You talked about this in your video uh, yesterday. They are coordinating yes. to try and, uh, and take away the monopoly that the U.S. has on the peace process in the Middle East, if you can call it a peace process that the U.S. is engaging in, and try to take that away from the U.S. and, uh, and take control of it on the BRICS side of things so that they can actually 
mediate a ceasefire in good faith and get to some sort of peace in the Middle East, something that uh, the Biden White House is obviously not uh, not interested in. Absolutely. Now, this is actually a very interesting story. Now, this is perhaps the most likely way that this particular crisis is going to end. Now, saying all of that, there is a very, very real possibility, and one we should not underestimate, of the whole situation getting completely out of control. Uh, a um, U.S. A, uh, attacks on Russian positions in Syria, the Russians retaliating, all of those things that we've just been talking about. I mean, th- this is... We're, we are... This is more likely than one would be comfortable with. I'm not going to say it's going to happen, but there is a real possibility of it, and it is much more a much greater possibility than one would ever have expected. But ultimately, it seems to me that as this crisis deepens, as the fighting in Gaza intensifies, and by the way, it remains at an intensely high level anyway, there's major bombing campaigns by the Israelis in Gaza, the ha- Palestinians, Hamas, are retaliating by missile strikes on Israel. So, you know, we, we're not in a peace situation of any kind. But as the fighting intensifies, as it grinds down, grinds on, as casualties mount, there will be more and more international pressure from the global south, from some countries within Europe, from um, the BRICS states for a ceasefire and for um, some action to be taken. Now, the thing to understand is that the United States doesn't take the Security Council, the UN Security Council. It doesn't understand it. It doesn't really understand how it works. Diplomats who are posted to the UN Security Council by the United States tend to be either political appointees, like, say, Nikki Haley, or they tend to be people who've done lots of other work. Compare that with Sergei Lavrov, who is Russia's foreign minister, who for several years was Russia's ambassador to the Security Council. So the Russians, and not just the Russians, but the BRICS, take the Security Council and the UN and its structures extremely seriously, and they understand how it can be used in order to shape a situation. So we've seen a two-step. Firstly, the Russians propose a resolution. The resolution says we need an immediate ceasefire, we need um, a um, um, humanitarian supplies to be allowed into Gaza, we need to have the hostages released. That's what this draft resolution says, and the Russians say, beyond that, we need to have a proper negotiating process to find a long-term sustainable solution to the Middle East. So the United States then falls into a trap, because that's what happened. They say, we can't support this resolution, because it doesn't condemn Hamas. And they veto the resolution, and they get the British and the French to veto the resolution, and other countries abstain, including Brazil, which, note, is a BRICS state. Very good terms with Russia. So the Americans say, we're not going to support this resolution because it doesn't condemn Hamas. So what happens? The following day, Brazil, Brazil this time, puts forward what is essentially the same resolution. But 
it contains in it words that condemn Hamas. In other words, it appears to respond to the American objections of the previous day. So what does the United States do? Well, they still have to veto the resolution. It gets 12 votes. Three countries, two two abstain, one votes against. The one that votes against is the United States, effectively contradicting what they'd said the day before. If you read the statement of the US ambassador, it is a study in discomfort and incoherence. I mean, she really wasn't able to provide any kind of coherent reason as to why the United States was vetoing the resolution. Um, And the two countries that abstain, one is Britain, and of course the other is Russia. And the reason the Russians abstained was because the Brazilians abstained on the Russian resolution, the Russians abstain on the Brazilian resolution. The two are clearly working together, and it opens the way for the Brazilians to say, well, we putting forward our resolution. It's different from what the one the Russians put forward. It's nothing to do with the Russians. We put it forward. We've answered your concerns. We're not acting as a Russian proxy. Why don't you support our resolution? It is extremely clever, and it is part of the chess game, which eventually, as I've said this already, some weeks, some months along the line, is going to lead to result in a humongous resolution, which isn't just going to be about this particular specific crisis we have now, but which is probably going to set out principles and positions for a broader peace settlement in the, in the Middle East. And the Chinese are set talking about setting up an international conference to look for a way to find a solution to the crisis in the Middle East. In other words, to take it away, to take away the diplomacy from the Americans. Note, by the way, that France yesterday voted for the Brazilian resolution. So we already see cracks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the BRICS might, uh, might save us from this catastrophe, we'll see. Absolutely. Well, but, um... Because they're the real adults in the room. I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing to understand. I mean, you know, people talked about Donald Trump, you know, being this wild, um, e- e- unstable infant who was smashing all the furniture, even as in reality he was trying to do diplomacy. The real adults in the room were not the people who replaced him, you know, the Biden with his colossal foreign policy experience. By the way, Putin was unbelievably sarcastic about this in certain comments he made in a press conference about Biden's tremendous foreign policy experience. But anyway, the real adults in the room are not to be found in the administration. They're to be found at the moment leading the BRICS. And um, the Europeans, of course, completely out of the picture. Even some European states are now furious with um, Ursula von der Leyen going to Israel without consulting them and saying all kinds of things which appear to commit the EU to a position which had not been fully agreed. And in the meantime, Olaf Scholz, blundering, incompetent, dim, Olaf Scholz going around the Middle East and he's being abused by the 
Jordanians, he's been insulted by the Egyptians. Nobody's taking him seriously either. Yeah. Europe is out of the picture. Absolutely. Europe is done. No, Absolutely. No, no one wants, no one even, I was going to say no one wants to deal with Europe, but that's not even factual. No one even cares. Nobody even cares. Europe anymore. No, no. Yeah. Yeah, no one even cares. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. We'll leave it there. The Durad.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, Rockfin, and Twitter X. And go to the Durad shop. 20% off. Use the code The Durad20. Take care. <laughs>